I like to think as farmers that we all have the ability to step back from the day-to-day busyness of our work and take a holistic view of what it is that we do. For Anne and me, that all-too-brief moment tends to come around annually. About now, in fact, when we stop milking and cheesing for the season. And yes, to cheese is a verb in our household. As our goats quietly gestate, we recover from our busy season. After a couple of weeks of glorious sleep-ins, we find ourselves reflecting on our life. Do we still want to do this? Are we making a difference? And are we doing the right thing for our earth, our atmosphere and our children? Several weeks ago, I made contact with Associate Professor Matthew Harrison, an agricultural scientist at the Tasmanian Institute of Agriculture. Matthew looks at agricultural systems from a holistic perspective. He uses systems modelling research techniques, leads a diverse team and generates a lot of scientific evidence. This evidence is used to inform the policies for Australian government, as well as various other international bodies. I feel like Matt is the master of the Venn diagram. You might remember from your school years that Venn diagrams are those overlapping shapes, usually circles that visually represent the relationships between sets of information. Matt and his team look at economics, environment and the social and cultural aspects of agriculture to develop innovative solutions to improve the sustainability of agricultural systems. Excitingly, Matt has recently secured $30 million in funding for a transdisciplinary research program. This program will develop socially acceptable interventions that focus on reducing emissions and greenhouse gas mitigation strategies through carbon storage in agriculture. Joining us in this conversation with Matt is Ian, my husband. He was unable to pass up an opportunity to learn from another scientist, particularly one who researches in the field in which we now practice. I have to admit that the conversation was better for his involvement. This episode is really about carbon accounting in farming, gaining a better understanding of emissions from livestock, carbon sequestration in soil, and the dilemma that this presents to farmers. But I promise you it's a conversation, not a lecture, and Matt does a great job avoiding jargon and providing answers that we can all understand. My name is Kate, and I'm the Curious Farmer. In 2012, my husband and I started Leap Farm. We apply ecological principles to try and benefit the environment while producing great tasting food. Our endeavour has led to more questions. So join me as I get all the dirt straight from the farmers, chefs, scientists and people who love to eat good food about how we can make informed decisions about the best ways to grow, shop and eat food with our health and the health of our planet in mind. I'm an associate professor at the University of Tasmania. I'm based at um, Burnie, which is Cradle Coast Campus. I lead a multidisciplinary team that um, comprises economists, biophysical modelers, statisticians, spatial scientists. We focus a lot on livestock, greenhouse gas mitigation and adaptation, also uh, predominantly on climate change adaptation. So we do a lot of whole farm system stuff, but also a lot of applied work with stakeholders and um, farmers and industry and also state, well, also governments of all levels, really. So 
our work is really applied. So it's more about asking and going out and working with industry to see what they need and sort of designing solutions, technologies, skills and practices so that it meets, you know, what people need in that way. So I've been at Bernie for eight or nine years now, so quite some time. And uh, yeah, it's quite enjoyable. That that work really takes me all across the country, really. So I've got a number of projects happening at the moment. They're all pretty much all over the country. So some of them are collaborating with Northern Territory, some with Queenslanders, quite a lot of Queensland stuff, Victorians, South Australian people, and another project with WA. So pretty much across the country. Okay. The reason I wanted to contact you and what I'm interested in is some of the science behind the methane that ruminants produce and what actually that contributes to in terms of global emissions or even local emissions, because I keep getting conflicting information. So some people say that the science isn't that great, that they've based off all these subsequent scientific studies that have been presented to the UN and that agriculture is ruining the climate. I just think that there's so much misinformation out there that I'm actually looking to understand how the science of assessing methane production in ruminants was actually even established, whether we've replicated that and also what, what does it actually all really mean? And I'm sure there'll be more questions I have for you as we go along. Yeah, no, that's fine, Kate. That, that's a broad question, but uh, I, I haven't got the, the numbers of livestock emissions off the top of my head, but I think it's something like 14.5% of global emissions, agricultural emissions come from livestock. That figure is different in Australia. I think it's about 20% or something of emissions come from livestock, agricultural emissions, that is. I'm just going to interrupt briefly for a quick fact check. The most up-to-date data that I could find on Australian livestock emissions comes from the Australian Department of Agriculture, and that was updated 18 months ago in November 2019. The website reports that 11% of Australia's total greenhouse gas emissions comes from agriculture, and of this, 70% is attributable to livestock. I also looked at Food and Agriculture Organisation of the United Nations, and they detail that livestock accounts for 14.5% of global greenhouse gas emissions. So Matt was right on the money. Probably in all cases, not, and not just with agriculture, but with any factual or information statistic that really needs measurement, whether it's climate change or effects of the diet on human health really I think a peer-reviewed science is the only way only avenues for credible information you can get all sorts of people with their opinion out there but you should really go by peer-reviewed science and by that I mean that it's been published in a in an international journal so that it's been peer-reviewed by an international scientist so that they accept or reject the validity or the credibility of the work that's been done. If it's been published, you can have some assurance in, well, what they're proposing is right. Is It may not be exactly right, but, you know, at least they've highlighted the assumptions behind the work and outlined some of the limitations. So uh, there's a lot of stuff on, on greenhouse gas emissions. Livestock, I think, get the most focus because they're they produce enteric methane uh, and methane roughly 30 times the warming in global warming potential of CO2. 
as in all science, there's different areas that are currently under research. And so when you're at the coal face of any of those areas, doesn't matter whether it's agriculture or physics or law or whatever, there's always contention and argument when you're at the coalface because people are just debating it and saying, well, I propose this, well, you propose that, but I think this is better. So Einstein did the same. He developed his special theory of relativity or something. And then a, a priest afterwards, I think it was an English priest, came up with a different theory and said that, um, you know, I can actually prove that black holes exist based on your theory, Einstein. And Einstein said, well, no, that's not right. I don't think it's, you know, you're totally wrong. Einstein later said, well, you were right. Sorry, I was wrong. Uh, you did use my equations in the right way and you actually did prove the existence of black holes using my equations. That's just an example. So you can you can sort of go to the coalface in any area and get argument. Probably one thing to look for is, is accepted arguments. What's the consensus in what people are saying? So if, if you're coming from a, a, a sort of a radical group, whether it's vegans or even the other way fully fully bent on meat you're probably going to expect opinions that are biased so you should always as far as possible try to balance the arguments from both sides with livestock there's the demand side of things and there's the there's the production side of things so science i think to date has mainly been focused on solutions on the supply side so by that i mean solutions in working with farmers so reducing nitrogen applied to pastures to reduce nitrous oxide, uh, genetic modification of animals to reduce enteric methane, things like feeding red algae to reduce uh, enteric methane. So that's all supply side. So reducing emissions associated with livestock supply. On the other side, at the other end of the spectrum, you've got demand. So what people, governments, various organisations and groups are trying to do is to influence the dietary choices of the consumer. And that's fair enough. You know, it depends on what organisation they're from, whether they're from a not-for-profit or a research organisation or whatever. And there's various reasons for trying to push people down different dietary choices, whether it's health reasons or supposed greenhouse gas or environmental benefits. But uh, the demand side is much harder to influence, but uh, the supply side is easier because you're dealing with a, a smaller target audience which is really farmers producers processors retailers and wholesalers and that's sort of about it the supply chain one of the things i'd love to know is how were the first experiments conducted to establish how much methane a ruminant produces well that's a good question so the modern technology and i, I don't I, i'm a systems modeler so i deal in whole farm look at whole holistic aspects so from um, animals to grass growth to climate change to atmosphere so I, I'm not a, a pure reductionist experimental approach but the way I believe that they do it and they they still do it now there's a couple of ways so there's one way is to put the animal in a chamber which is basically like a glass box uh, and that box is totally sealed and so they can because of they can dictate the air that goes in and the air that comes out they can analyze the methane that comes out of that box so that doesn't harm the animal that's just analyzing every piece of air that comes in and goes out and that's very accurate the other way that's a little bit less accurate but it's cheaper is through canisters so they can put chambers on the animal's head not chambers but um like a face mask type. Yeah, it's thing. like a mask thing and they, and they breathe into it. They're in the field and they can breathe into it. And they could, because most of the methane comes out their mouth or their nose, they breathe straight into it and they can analyse that directly and then download the data from those loggers and then get an indication of the methane that they breathe. So the numbers that they have 
are pretty well validated and because many people have shown not just one or two but lots there's yeah. lots and lots of data on that so the people have done it as a baseline as in what animals are producing now but then also for an intervention so they've said if I come along and feed these animals red algae what's the difference in enteric methane or if I genetically manipulate the genotype so I produce a low supposedly low methane breed which is going on in New Zealand now a lot for sheep you know they measure the the existing standard default variety of methane as well as the new variety and so they can they can actually measure big big differences in methane generation without compromising productivity. Now, Matthew, I thought that methane was actually produced in the rumen of the animal by the bacteria that uh, they're basically fermenting and helping to digest the grass or the pasture species, the stuff that we can't digest really either. And it was driven by bacteria. So how does genetically modifying an animal improve methane production or decrease yeah it's de well I, i'm not a geneticist and that that's an active area in itself as well so that's what i was getting at when there's many many different areas that are going on not just in agriculture or in livestock but all across the board in science and everywhere and so there's experts in every particular area so i i just have to put a disclaimer on what i say that i'm not a not a geneticist and particularly not a livestock geneticist, although I do have meetings with them quite often. So the way I believe that it works is that there's methanogens in the rumen. And so what they, methanogen are a black box of bacteria, fungi, and all sorts of goodies. So it's a double-edged sword, really. They enable the animal to break down cellulose, so straw, even potentially wood. Uh, so that sort of thing, which we can't break down. But the process of doing so generates methane. And so they break it down and produce that. What they can do, and I'm not fully up to speed with the latest science in this, but what I, I have seen presentations on, for example, the New Zealand people, what they've done is they've, they've done across several populations of sheep and said, okay, we're going to select. So in any population, you get some that have produced high methane, some that produce low methane. So what they said is, okay, we're going to select the low methane ones and cross them with the low methane ones over several populations. And so therefore the rationale then is you get progeny or offspring that have lower methane. The only problem with that is that you could be selecting for methanogens in their rumen rather than genetics per se. So that's a very sort of a very complex thing. But I think what they have shown is that you can actually breed for lower methane genotypes that eat the same amount of material because the the material that you eat has a big effect on methane. If it's highly digestible, you know, just as an example for sugar, if it's highly digestible, they produce hardly anything. If it's if it's mostly indigestible, like straw, well then their methanogens crank into top gear and then they'll produce a lot of methane. So if they feed them the same amount of material, one kilo for the high methane producing and one kilo for the low methane, you can actually, they have developed low methane breeds. And it's an area under pretty close scrutiny now, both in cattle and in um, sheep. But the other thing with breeding is that you can, you can select for these low methane genotypes, but in doing so, you can automatically cancel out other traits. So you might actually select for a low productivity genotype or a ewe that for example is low uh, fertility so you have to be careful that you're selecting for multiple traits not just one and that's the same with anything really when you 
when you look at greenhouse gas mitigation, you shouldn't really just look at greenhouse gas mitigation. You should look at, well, what's the cost? So, for example, red algae. Red algae is a good one that gets a lot of focus. You can feed it red algae and it might have, you know, 80, 90, 95% reduction in enteric methane. So fantastic in terms of enteric methane. But where do you get it from? How much does it cost? How much do you need to feed them? Do you get any change in productivity? If it's going to be too costly, well, people won't do it. So profitability is the bottom line. So governments and global institutions want one thing, but farmers ultimately will really be interested in profitability and to a lesser extent, sustainability. So unless you can come along and say, I'm going to pay a premium for carbon neutral branding, or I'm actually going to pay you through an ERF, through an emissions reduction fund for your carbon that you avoid, or I'm going to give you some other co-benefit such as I don't know what it is. You could say soil carbon or whatever for the emissions that you avoid. Unless you've got a physical way for getting money for that, you know, farmers are not likely to hand out additional money just to avoid emissions to get no extra income. Particularly when the margins are so narrow. Yeah. And as we've seen in New South Wales with massive fires 12 months ago, a plague in 2020 followed by floods this week, you know, it makes it very, very difficult on the land when you have these disasters that are occurring, which are occurring more frequently because of climate change. But at the same time, you still have to be able to feed your family. Yeah, and that's, and that's very important. So what, uh, you know, industry bodies like the NFF have starting to um, investigate potential remuneration schemes for things like biodiversity. The idea there is that you increase the biodiversity on farm through, for example, planting trees or vegetation, which will sequester carbon. But at the same time, you get birds and bees and all sorts of habitat come into those trees. So you get all those co-benefits. But in the absence of a payment for the farmer, you're not going to go out and plant trees to get additional biodiversity unless you can specifically get revenue from that. In some ways, you could get a co-benefit from shading for your reduced heat stress and therefore less stressed animals and potentially higher productivity, but it would have to be a very good co-benefit to, or a very hot environment to actually make up for it in terms of reduced or increased livestock productivity for the vegetation that you sow. So if there was a way for remunerating farmers specifically for the biodiversity or, or vegetation, you know, I'm talking, in, I'm talking on top of carbon here, well, then that would be useful. I think that would be welcomed and that would be something that um, you know certainly deserves further consideration research development adoption and extension so I think that what the NFF are investigating now is really good but we probably just need more of it the carbon price at the moment is um, 16 or 17 dollars a ton and, and we've shown this a lot in our past work the, the money that you get from enrolling in an ERF emissions reduction fund scheme is very, very small. So that the, the value of the productivity is about an order of magnitude or the power of 10 more than what you make from carbon. So farmers will always tend towards more productivity than making money from carbon. So basically, if, if they wanted more people to enrol in the ERF, the carbon price would have to be much higher. I think one of the other things that I understand from talking to other people as well is that really 
the price for carbon is only valuable for massively huge farms. So for a lot of the small farms that are up the eastern seaboard and in Tasmania, there just isn't, it, it costs you money to enrol in the ERF rather than looking at all those small farms grouped together, having quite a significant land mass over the eastern seaboard in particular, and together they would do quite well. But because they're all small individual businesses, it's too costly. For- yeah, that's it. That's right. And that, and soil carbon is a case in point. I work with the federal government now in terms of trying to come up with a new method to reduce the cost of enrolling in a soil carbon ERF because the cost for an individual, particularly small farm, is of compliance, auditing, that sort of thing is well more than what you'd make with respect to soil carbon sequestration. So aggregation is one way, and you met, you rightly mentioned that. So if you can um, if you can join forces with ten other farmers and they all enrol in a soil carbon emissions reduction fund scheme, and all of you impose some intervention to improve your soil carbon, whether that's conserving stubble on top or planting a deep rooted legume or replacing crops with native pastures so that the roots grow deeper and it's not cultivated any of that sort of thing to improve soil carbon and you can join forces and the one auditor does all of the farms and such that your overhead costs are reduced well then you do you can make much more from it but a lot depends on you know soil carbon in particular what your existing soil carbon stocks are now if you're if you're very high soil carbon stocks now or getting close to the maximum there's not much point get enrolling in an ERF to do an intervention because you're not get, you're just going to be paying for it and your and your soil carbon's not going to go up that much. In contrast to the degraded landscapes or the the farms that haven't done much to preserve or try and build up soil carbon stocks in the past, well then if they enrol in it now and they do some intervention to improve it, they build up their soil carbon by a long way because they they had let it degrade before, so that. That really is a problem with the existing policy that's called additionality. So what you have to prove and what you get paid on from the Australian government is what you build on. So if you're already starting from a high base, you can only build soil carbon up to a point. And soil carbon, people talk about it like it's a magical thing, but it's really just organic matter. So it's you've got different forms of organic matter, stable, inert, humus, and all that sort of thing. But all it really is is just soil carbon. So if you stop if you stop growing stuff on the surface or if you stop putting nitrogen on and you let that organic matter go, your soil carbon goes down again. So it's not, it's not a magic bullet where you, you build it up and then that's it. You're right for future. You have to keep those inputs going in, whether it's fertilizer or irrigation or manure crops or whatever it is, so that you keep actually putting those inputs in so that you maintain that organic matter and the, and the only way you could really make money from it is if you're starting from a low base. If, and then if you enrol in it from a low base, well, then you're probably going to make a lot of money. But if you've already got your soil carbon high uh, and then you enrol in it, well, then you're not going to make much because you can't increase it much. What's considered high? Well, soil carbon very much depends on your, your soil type and your location. So if you've got a clay soil, you've got a tendency to preserve, to increase to a higher base. So a very high soil carbon would be 10%. A high soil carbon would be 6 or 7%. 
depends on your soil though. If you're in a, an arid, semi-arid environment in a sandy soil, a high soil carbon would be 4%. Mm -hmm. So it just depends on where you are. So if, if soil carbon's so easy to lose in drought, flood, other measures where you're losing organic matter, do you think it would be worth promoting the, a strategy to pay farmers for maintaining soil carbon, not just necessarily building it? Yeah, that's sort of what the, the existing policy does now. So they have this thing, one of the policy's terms is called permanence. And so you get paid to, to keep that soil carbon there for 25 or 100 years, depending on the policy. So I don't know of anyone who's going to, in one lifetime, going to be able to do it in 100 years, but you get paid for 25 years. So they come back and they keep measuring it every, I forget what it is, every three years or every five years, the auditor. Uh, and they measure it at randomised locations in your paddock. Uh, but if it's gone down, you don't get paid. But if it's gone up, you will get paid. But the idea is that you actually keep it there. So you keep it by keeping it in the soil, you're keeping it out of the atmosphere. So that the potential to sequester carbon at the landscape scale is potentially high, but only, uh, only really in environments where you've got enough rainfall and enough nutrition and not that are not overly heavily grazed because if you if you heavily graze it and you take off all the above ground material shrubs or grass or whatever well then you're not going to have any inputs and then there's you're not going to have any soil carbon so it's it's very much dependent on what your grazing regime is also your rainfall also your fertilizer so if it's there there is potential to do it in extensive you know rangeland environments but that requires different more drought adapted herbs and shrubs and woody herbs and that sort of thing and more sort of natural farming to those environments yeah that's right so okay. su suiting suiting the 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 plant to the environment but but sort of rehabilitating the environment with a vegetation and not overgrazing it at the same time someone an english guy said it to me a long time ago he said the, the best way to sequester soil carbon and i don't know if this is exactly right but i've never seen that it's proven wrong the best way to get a grazing regime to sequester soil carbon is to just graze it lightly anything more than light grazing you take off more and therefore the litter inputs and the ability to grow roots and roots is just organic matter match it has to be a balance yeah will decline but on the other hand you have a farmer who has to get revenue from the livestock that they use so in many environments, not just Australia, but developing countries and low and middle income countries, they depend on livestock for their livelihoods. It's not just economic, but it's cultural and social and everything else. So they, they're just totally dependent on them. I, just, I, I'm, I should let Kate do this, but I'm just super curious. The reason I was asking that question is because Kate didn't actually mention, but our soil carbon last time it was measured is 8%. Yeah, right. Very high. Yeah. So for us, it's exceptionally difficult to get any recompense for our good land management. And I yes. With, you know, very humbly, because we've only had the place for 10 years. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. That's that's really, really good. But the, the other thing is the, um, the co-benefits associated with soil carbon. So the actual payment that you get from soil carbon per se is hardly anything for to build it up more than eight percent would be very difficult you could you could build it up more but it'd be difficult but the big benefit that you get is increased soil water holding capacity increased fertility and so therefore increased pasture growth so you're 
you get the intangible benefit of extra pasture growth, but you get paid through that with additional feed production and live weight gain, but very difficult to build that up and get paid per se for soil carbon. Mm. So these are this is sometimes what we speak about when we talk to people is about the unwritten costs of food production. And so we actually pay a lot of those costs through our farming practice. And while people are happy to pay the, the premium price that we charge for our produce, we can look after the land as we want to and maintain soil carbon. I, th I think the, the, big, the big benefit is for, with soil carbon, as it is with vegetation, is the co-benefit. Mm -hmm. So you, you get paid for that co-benefit through increased livestock productivity. So your soil carbon, as I say, is really accounts to extra grass growth. And if, you, if you've got extra, you know, it's also drought resilience. If you've got soil organic matter, it holds onto the water and then you've got greater capacity, plant available water capacity to get over a dry spell. And therefore, if you've got more water, you've got more grass growth in a dry spell or a dry period. So that's useful as well. And it's the same way with vegetation. The carbon that you make from vegetation, unless you're planting a big area or doing agroforestry, is probably not that much. But the co-benefit that you get with biodiversity or reduced livestock stress. So an environment like Tasmania, if you're on a, on a windy, cold coastline and you plant trees along that coastline and you reduce lamb mortality in winter due to that reduced wind chill and you have higher lambing weaning percentage that's a big gain huge gain you've got less mortality so so it does have an effect you just have to well the same with trees be strategic about where you plant them and it's also the same with soil carbon it's not just getting up to that point and then you're, you're right for future it's about maintaining best practice all the time Matthew, back to greenhouse gas emissions from livestock. You mentioned before that ruminants who have a high sugar, more palatable food actually produce less methane. And that's made me think about how we improve the sugar content because you measure sugar content, don't you, in your pasture with a, a bricks, a bricksometer, is it called? A bricks meter. And I'm just wondering if, if that is part of the key to this, improving the, the carbohydrates in your pasture to reduce. And I guess it, that's why we, we've invested in a pastured beef, 100% pastured beef. Our, our dairy goats get some grain because they need the high protein to be able to continue to produce the milk for cheese making. But in terms of how we can better reduce greenhouse gas emissions from our livestock by increasing the carbohydrates in the pasture that would improve that from what you said is that indeed yep so but basically the first time I learned about it it was quite a surprise it's it's pretty much the opposite to human nutrition so humans they say cut back on your calories increase your fiber ruminant nutritionists say the opposite they say increase the digestibility reduce the fiber so in other words, feed them highly digestible, high sugar content, low fiber, because they'll put on weight really fast and they don't emit much methane. So it's totally the opposite to what they advise for humans. But I suppose humans, they're saying don't gain weight. Livestock, they're saying gain weight, don't produce methane. So it's totally the other end of the scale. But th this is only for ruminants, so for for monogastrics like pigs and chickens, that's a different story because they don't have a rumen. 
Now, I'm not a pasture breeder as well, but there are a lot of people that focus specifically on pasture breeding for high sugar content. I know of professors at the University of Melbourne, also in New Zealand, that focus and have focused for a long time on high sugar perennial ryegrasses. So what, you know, because you've got that trade-off between a lot of dry matter that's not digestible per hectare versus hardly any dry matter that's highly, highly digestible. What's, what's better for livestock? You know, you could have a lot of stuff, 10 tonnes of stuff that's not really digestible, or is it better having very little that's highly digestible? So that people have looked at all that sort of thing and, that, and they've basically said the higher the me- megajoules per hectare, the, the better off you eventually are in the long term. So that's really led to the thinking that, well, we're going to breed for high sugar ryegrasses and high energetic content ryegrasses and that sort of thing. And then you've got that other tension with uh, what's the what's the ryegrass um, bacteria symbiont thing that they're trying to avoid where you get ryegrass staggers? Ergotism. So Ergotism, er- yeah. It's, it's the bacteria, but I forget the name or the fungus. I can't remember the bacteria, but I just know the syndrome, of course. Yeah, that, that's the, so they're trying to breed for high sugar ryegrasses at the same time as avoiding that. But uh, so that's, and I mean, that's one reason, you know, not really for the reduced methane emissions, but more towards live weight gain. So there's another reason that's probably very important that you look at these things in a whole system sense is that. Um, Soil carbon is a good example. If you, if you build up your soil carbon, which you have done, you, you'll grow more grass. So the, the idea is that the government pays you for re- reducing emissions out of the atmosphere. So therefore prevent climate change, therefore prevent global warming, therefore prevent big global disasters like sea level rise and all that sort of thing. But if you increase your soil carbon, you increase your pasture growth, you're not just going to increase your pasture growth. You're going to say, well, I've got more grass. I'm going to put more animals on it. So if you put more animals on it, your enteric methane goes up and therefore your enteric methane offsets the carbon that you sequester in the soil. In fact, what happens is you normally outweigh it by additional animals so that you're now producing more emissions than what you would have if you hadn't built up your soil carbon in the first place. So it's important that people look at these things in a whole system in a systemic sense not in isolation but I I guess in the first case you have to look at all research in isolation but really it should be extended at some point so that it's looked at holistically yeah and that's really what you do yeah that's what I do that's that's what my team do we put it into systems models um so we, we get sort of reductionist research, like the ryegrass stuff and the animal genetics and the feeding of red algae, and we put it into systems models and we say, well, that's fine in that environment, but what about in a different location or what about in a different climate or what about if the grass grows more and you put more animals on and that sort of thing? One of the things that I've heard as well, which I can't make sense of because I thought chemistry was just chemistry, is that biomethane has less detrimental effect than methane that's produced, for instance, through the burning of fossil fuels. And I can't understand how methane that's been burped out of a ruminant would behave atmospherically any differently from fossil fuel methane. And I was wondering if you could help me either understand that or debunk the concept that biomethane is less harmful than fossil fuel generated methane. 
Yeah, so you, it's a little bit of a confusing issue, but you, you rightly hit the nail on the head. Methane is methane. So it's in both cases, it's got, depending on who you go by, about 30 times the warming of a normal CO2 molecule. So in the atmosphere, it doesn't make any difference. The, the way that biomethane is supposedly a carbon neutral or a carbon negative gas is because of its displacement of fossil fuels. So if you're, if you're burning biomethane, which is almost identical to normal methane, if you're burning that and you can burn it through a town reticulation system, it's fine. Put it through the stove, whatever, it's no different. If you're burning that, you don't actually have to use that portion of methane that you would have used from fossil fuels. So they call that displacement. So you're not actually using that oil or that gas or that methane that would have been used. So the way that you get biomethane or biogas in the first place is through anaerobic digesters. And it's not just agriculture. In fact, it's not, most of it is municipal waste, sewerage, wastewater treatment. But uh, mainly in agriculture, it's piggeries and dairies. So where you've, where you've got access to a confined source of manure, you can't really do it in an extensive grazing scenario because all the manure goes on the paddock. But if you've got a dairy or a piggery where you can actually get the manure, you can put it in a lagoon. And if you cover that lagoon airtight, you can catch the, the methane that comes off it. Or if you put it in a solid steel or concrete digester, so it's really that organic mace and with the natural bacteria in it, it produces what's called biogas. And biogas is a bit more than 50% CO2, but also it's got methane in it, but also other gases as well, carbon monoxide, nitrogen oxides and all that sort of thing so what they do is they purify it that's called carbon dioxide scrubbing and they get rid of all the co2 and all the other crap so that it's more than 90 percent methane they just really want to purify it for methane and then it's fine the methane is methane and they burn it so dairy farms can burn it themselves and therefore because they're burning their own methane they can turn off the power to the grid so to speak and therefore they're not using fossil fuels so they're actually carbon negative because they're using their own their own energy that's come from the manure from the cattle the same with piggeries and you're actually displacing that fossil fuel use so normal biogas is because it's got all sorts of other stuff in it it's quite it's 14 to 26 megajoules per cubic meter but biomethane because it's more methane in it is about 36 megajoules per cubic meter so energetically it's much more mainly because it's more pure so when people talk about biomethane not being different from other methane, it's more that we can utilise it in biodigesters, for instance, for energy production. But if we've got ruminants out in the paddock burping, the methane that or the biomethane that they produce has the same effect atmospherically as does any other methane that's yep. produced through an industrial process, for instance. That's right, yeah. There are promising new interventions for reducing that methane, but in the absence of any intervention, and it's just a cow out in a paddock or a dairy cow in a paddock, if it burps methane and that methane goes into the atmosphere, that's no different to any other methane. Yeah. If you if you come along and fed the cow red algae or if you gave it a methane vaccine or if you fed it dietary oils or if you a bolus in its rumen so that it reduces methane you can do any of them things to reduce methane they're all promising solutions new zealand has got this chemical called three nop 
which is like a white powder that they're feeding to all dairy cattle in the industry now. So that has a big effect on enteric methane. But in the absence of any of them, it's just methane. Yeah, yeah. What's the vaccine? Yeah, well, this is only under investigation and under research as well. But uh, the idea is that you give them a vaccine into the rumen or give them a vaccine and then it reduces enteric methane for a certain period of time, a bit like a flu shot. And it's good for low touch situations where, you know, I work with quite a few farmers and they've said, well, we couldn't possibly feed our cattle because we wouldn't be able to access them enough. And so they've said, if you know, if you get a methane vaccine, well, we could vaccinate them once a year. So the idea there is that you vaccinate them, you reduce the activity of the methanogens, and therefore you get less X proportion of less methane. But I think it's a topic under heavy investigation, as is red algae, and they've investigated things like grape mark and dietary oils and all that sort of thing for a long time. Yeah, we're still in research phase, really, of all these things, aren't we? Yeah, if you had a, a supplement or a feed additive that had a co-benefit for productivity, you know, that made them grow more, well, then that would have a big effect because you're going to get paid for that productivity. But if you come along and say, feed them red algae and it has no effect on productivity, apart from the effect on emissions mitigation, there's not a lot of incentive at current carbon prices to do it, probably. Some of the stuff I've read in the MLA magazine indicates that by reducing methane, that's just a form of energy that the animal then, you know, excretes, that by reducing the amount of methane that they will therefore have more calories that they can, because they're not losing that energy, they can actually keep that energy and it will improve productivity. But I'm not sure that that is actually scientific or has been borne out. Yeah, that's the rationale. I've seen that before. And it good it, in theory, it makes perfect sense. In practice, what happens is that the animal metabolism changes slightly and it says, well, hang on, I've got more calories here. So I'm just going to increase my metabolism a bit or increase body temperature a bit. And so therefore, you don't really see a lot of change in live weight gain, unless it has a big effect. In some cases, it does. But uh, I'm not up to speed on the latest literature for it, so I won't say too much in that area, but I haven't seen a lot of evidence for it. Interesting, isn't it? It does make yeah, sense theoretically. So if you're not losing it, you're gaining it. Yeah. Humans, well, livestock and humans, any mammals are the same. There's a, there's a certain range of tolerance before you'll actually get an actual change in live weight. Humans are the same. If you have an extra piece of cake for afternoon tea, well, if you had that every day, it would make a difference. But if you have it one day, your metabolism will go up and your body temperature will go up and your body will say, oh, I've got more calories to spend. I'll just use it in whatever way I can. Uh, and you don't actually have any live weight or weight gain change. If you're doing it over a long time, well, then it goes into your glycerol and then therefore it, the body says, okay, well, I've got, I've got surplus reserves here for a long time. I can actually afford to put that away into adipose and then therefore gain weight. But uh, in a short term, your body's got lots of ways to compensate, but in the same way as if you cut back on food, your body says, oh, okay, I've got less food. I'll just make sure I'll just get regulated to be a lower temperature so I don't lose weight. So your body is always trying to keep yourself at a certain weight. And it's the same with livestock. So you have to really push the boundaries to get a, a weight change. That's for an adult animal, not for a for young animal. Young animals are different, obviously. They're designed to grow. Yeah, like my children. Yeah, that's right. Human, human growth hormone. So it'll take a lot to hold them down. 
<laughs> uh, there's only so many bricks in the garden I can pile that's on That's right. Here. That's right. So you have to feed them. Well, you have to feed them if you want them to grow, but they will tend to grow anyway. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, but humans, uh, adult humans and, and animals are meant to be within a biological weight. And if you, if you go lower than that weight or higher than that weight, your body will say in the long term it's stressed or it's weak to try and get back to that, that uh, genetic threshold that you should have been. Right, yeah. We hear a lot about methane being all bad, but what I've read around and what I've listened to talks about was if you've actually got a standing herd and you've had that herd for more than 14 years, then your emissions aren't increasing. Your emissions are actually stable for enteric methane because of the, the life cycle of methane being shorter than CO2 in the atmosphere. And so if we can maintain or reduce our emissions of methane, really the bigger culprit at the moment is trying to focus on CO2. Yeah, well, there's two sides. There's the emissions side and then there's the sequestration side. And the sequestration, I mean, in soil carbon and in vegetation Farmers are quite lucky. They're quite unique in that different energy and transport and all that that can't sequester soil carbon. You can because you've got land. So airlines and energy companies are very eager to buy carbon credits. You might have heard of the recent example of Microsoft buying whatever it was, $50 million worth of carbon credits off a, off a livestock farm in Australia. So Microsoft, therefore, become carbon neutral and the farm the farm that it sold the credits were then not carbon neutral, but you can reduce your emissions through dietary oils or supplements or low methane genetics. So that's actually reducing the emissions, but you can only reduce your emissions to zero. On the other side, you've got carbon sequestration. So carbon sequestration can be much more, a lot more than your emissions. So it depends on the size of your herd. So if you've got X number of animals and they generate 100 tonnes of CO2 equivalents per year, you can only mitigate that 100 tonnes of CO2 equivalents per year to zero through supplements or algae or whatever you want. So you can only go down to zero. On the other hand, you've got renewable energy, you've got soil carbon, you've got vegetation carbon, you've got offsets in other ways, so anaerobic digesters or whatever. So you can not only sequester 100 tonnes of CO2 equivalents per year, you could sequester 1,000 or 200. So it's not dependent on your emissions. But energy companies and transport are really focused on just trying to mitigate what they produce. They haven't got the offset mechanism unless they buy credits off someone. So farmers and land managers are quite unique in that way. One of the big, big areas for soil carbon sequestration and trees is restoring degraded landscapes. So areas that are really built up like yours and that have been conserved and sustained well in the past, apart from vegetation, might not have that much potential. But areas that have been degraded, well, particularly Tasmanian areas where you've got a potential for high increase in soil carbon or and or planting trees, you know, they've got very high potential for soil carbon. But um, areas that have already been built up probably won't have much or already with respect to carbon. I'd like to shout out a huge thanks to Matt for taking the time to chat about some of the problems we face in agriculture and for working with farmers and other industry stakeholders to help us reduce emissions and, better yet, create opportunities to mitigate greenhouse gases.
Matt is always interested in hearing from farmers who are interested in being involved with research. If you are in Australia and interested in being involved, I've put his email address in the show notes so that you can email him directly. In the next episode of The Curious Farmer, I'll be chatting with Ian about our farm in the context of the conversation we've just had with Matt. Now, I'd just like to take this opportunity to thank you, my curious colleague, for coming back for more and for sharing these episodes with friends and other interested people and for dropping the occasional review on whatever platform you use. As always, if you've got questions or you want to get in touch, email me at thecuriousfarmer at gmail.com I always reply to every single email I get or find me on Facebook or Instagram at Leap Farm or online at leapfarm.com.au. Till next time.